This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by HCJ Contacts. Hello, good evening, everyone. Yes. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us here, HCJ.tax. Uh, we have webinars and live streams probably every week on various topics of interest to people who are international entrepreneurs, investors, or expats working overseas, working outside of the US. So today we have the, the honor and privilege of joining us, Mr. Bunya P. Sorry, those who have just joined, please could you remain mute? There's, uh, there'll be an opportunity at the end for you to unmute yourself for, for the Q&A. So th thanks for that. So joining us, we have Bunya and he is a qualified, uh, Singapore tax advisor and qualified accountant. Uh, as we've done in previous sessions, what we're going to do, because I know you guys joined with specific questions in mind. So what we've done is modified it from what we did previously, where we went through like a PowerPoint and then we went into the Q&A. So we're going to jump into the, the good stuff, which is what you signed up for, which is a Q&A. Some of you have sent questions in advance and comments in advance. Thanks for, thanks for doing both. Those who have not done so, depending on which platform you're going to be viewing this, you, if you're on Zoom, just look to the chat box below and you can type your questions there. If you're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you can type your questions or comments into the boxes below. And we get to them in the order in which we have received them. So without further ado, I'm going to just jump into the questions that were previously submitted. Number one, what are the tax breaks for those starting a Singapore private limited company? Buniyap, I think this is one for you. Um, all right. So, okay. Basically, for there are, there are different uh, incentives available for uh, new entities. I mean, new startup. Okay. For the first uh, three years of uh, the incorporation. So, company entitles uh, actually a, a lower... Uh, effective tax rate. So the, the headline tax in Singapore is 17%. But uh, as we know, um, very seldom for SME um, to pay a 17% tax. So it goes on to uh, a tier. Okay. So I think new, new entities uh, is paying about 4.25 effectively. And uh, beyond three years, uh, after the three years uh, tax break, uh, probably you, you will be at a higher rate, uh, six to seven percent. So, if you look at uh, uh, the chargeable income, if you are having a million Singapore dollars of um, chargeable income, effectively you are still paying something like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's about fifteen percent, uh, less than fifteen percent, right? So, effectively, it's still lower than. Uh, um, some of the major uh, competitive uh, economic countries like Hong Kong, right? So that would probably be the, um, the, the one of the areas of uh, tax incentives. Okay, you don't have to qualify, you don't have to apply, 
uh, is by default uh, available for all new entities except those uh, passive company. So when I say passive, meaning you are you are doing investments, investment holding companies, uh, just passive income. You're taking dividends, right? Uh, interest, um, some uh, property investments. Yes, you're, you're not entitled to qualify. But having said, you still qualify for uh, subsequent years. Okay, so. There's actually two types of uh, incentives. There's a full tax exemption scheme and the partial one. So all companies entitled to partial. Okay, so actually there, there's, a, there's a distinction between investment holding and investment trading. So if you are doing investment as part of the trading activities, uh, you are considered a trading company, a trade not an investment holding. So you qualify for all the incentives that are available for just like a normal company, right? Okay. Okay, that, that, that's pretty comprehensive. Thank you very much for that. So that kind of was a great segue into the second question, which was uh, submitted. Can I use a Singapore private limited to hold shares in my investments? So basically an investment holding company. So from a, I'll, I'll comment on the US side before we come back to you for the Singapore side. For a US side, obviously, yes, you can, but it tends to be not very tax efficient, uh, the default, unless you make certain elections or you do something to the structure. From a US tax perspective, it won't be very if, uh, efficient. And the reason why is because it triggers something called a PFIC or Passive Foreign Investment Company. That's PFIC for those who want to check it out. So this was a, a designation that was created in the 1980s in, in, in the tax code. And it basically was a response to the, the financial services industry in the United States that was saying that essentially a u.s person could invest outside of the u.s and be and experience more preferential tax treatment so as a result of that the pfic uh regime was established which to be completely honest with you it does a complete opposite it almost penalizes u.s exposed persons so this uh, this would be individuals as well as entities who create investment holding structures outside of the US. And again, there are ways of mitigating this. You speak to your tax advisor, but the default is, is, not, is an unfavorable treatment. And that definition of a passive foreign investment company, it's triggered by very specific uh, thresholds in terms of the, the, the level of income. So once the level of income uh, being operational or passive once a passive income exceeds a certain threshold pfic is, is, is triggered and similarly when you look at the balance sheet of the company if more than a certain percentage of the assets are held for the production of passive uh, passive income then again it, it's triggered so uh, that leads me to to what you said previously bunia are there like very specific thresholds for that investment holding structure in in singapore given what you mentioned um, previously. Okay, investment holding companies are typically uh, very less, uh, very least incentivized. So basically they don't have a lot of incentives um, available because uh, the, 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 if, if you receive dividend, they are not taxed. So all the dividends uh, channel out to um, the venture shareholders are not taxed again. So it's a first year. 
So that is why um, it's very minimum incentives available for uh, the investment holding companies. Understood, understood. So moving on to the next, next question that was submitted. Uh, what is a QEF election? So this, uh, again, it seems everything is, is, is flowing on from the, the previous question that was posed in that we've established that investment company or holding company structures, uh, they are not treated in a, a tax preferred manner by the US tax code. So one of the ways of, that some people deal with that is making what we call a QEF election under section 1295 of the tax code, where essentially the, the, the structure is it's treated as if in the same manner as a US mutual fund structure. So it, it mirrors what would have been done had this structure been established domestically, domestically as in within in the US. So the, the, the gains or the distributions retain their character. So if you have capital gains, then it's treated as capital gains and you return when it flows through to your 1040. Uh, this is assuming, so this type of election tends to be made at the beginning of your, your holding company structure. Uh, when you fail to do that, if you fail to make this QEF election, then you have these uh, aggressive look back rules and uh, throwback rules. Where, uh, the, because what, what, they, what the PFIC regime seeks to do, just take, keeping it very, very top line, it basically taxes you on what we call phantom income. So income that has not even been distributed yet, once there's income within the, the fund, uh, your, your investment structure, then even though it didn't get distributed to you as a salary or bonus or dividends or interest, whatever it is, however it is, you're going to pull it out. It is deemed to have done so and you're going to pay taxes on it. In addition to which, you have holding gains. So for example, if you create a, a holding company structure and you invest in a startup in Singapore, like many of our clients do, the startup scene is, of course, very vibrant. And the shares in your startup, the startup that you've invested in, it is appreciated in value with subsequent rounds. You know, with each round is a revaluation of the, of the share price. And it goes up. But you haven't sold anything. You haven't recognized. You, there's, there's no recognized gain. You haven't sold anything. Yet, you need to declare that increase, that appreciation. You need to include that on, on your tax return. Now, if you, so if you is, if it is that you do have a holding company or a PFIC structure and you fail to make those declarations on a year by year basis on your tax return, some aggressive throwback rules are invoked where you're taxed at your highest marginal tax rate, which right now is around 37%. And after the Biden uh, tax increases, one would expect that that will go up. So it's the highest marginal tax rate for the prior years, plus interest, plus penalties. So it becomes pretty draconian depending on your situation. So one of the workarounds on this is what we call a QEF election under section 1295. So this is assuming that you've dealt with all the section 1291 uh, gains uh, that we've just discussed, the, 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 where you made gains or you made income, but you didn't declare it on your tax return in prior years. So you need to clean that up or you need to cleanse the PFIC uh, of, of, of this taint 
because it's called a tainted PFIC. So once it's not tainted, you can make that 1295 election. Sometimes you can make it even though it's tainted, but we don't advise it. So you make the 1295 election and you're able to comfortably, not comfortably, but in a tax efficient way, declare it on your, on your tax returns uh, on an annual basis. So we work with investors who do have holding company structures or who do have investment structures in Singapore to make that QEF election and prepare the annual statements because it also requires that you prepare the accounts in a manner that's recognized by the IRS in order to enjoy that benefit. So, so that is a workaround to this PFIC uh, dilemma or, or situation that we discussed previously. So we, we can talk about that offline if you have further questions on it. Next question. What are the steps for giving up my US citizenship? Uh, this is a question and we, we're not the biggest team in the world and but we help probably three or four clients each month give up their passports or green card. But having said that, it's not like there's a gross uh, exodus from the US because we have many more clients enter the US in terms of pre-immigration planning. So, you know, just kind of balances itself out. The steps in giving up your passport are twofold. Same with your green card, right? there's the immigration side and there's a tax side so in terms of the immigration side that's relatively straightforward you can go to the embassy website i know it's been pretty difficult over the past year to get appointments because uh embassies across the uh, across the world have been subject to reduced operations for obvious reasons i won't say the word why because then we get censored on some of the platforms that we publish on so for obvious reasons embassies have been functioning and reduced operating hours and functionality as well but i believe that things are slowly but surely returning to, to normality so please reach out to the embassy in singapore online and you can book an appointment you go in you explain by then by the time you go in you need to have a second citizenship many people of course would have singapore but others you know australia new zealand european citizenship whatever it is your other citizenship is you go you declare that to them and they ask are you sure you say yes and then sometimes they take it from you right then then they give you a second appointment to come back depends on on the consular officer that you're dealing with and the, the important thing is that once it gets there the form of the paperwork gets sent to the state department and comes back to the embassy you get something called a cln a certificate of loss of nationality and that's backdated to when you first went in so so that's that the other side, which is perhaps a little bit more complicated, would be the tax side. So in order to properly and comfortably give up your citizenship, you need to make sure that your last five years of tax returns are in good order. So you may want to work with a tax professional to make sure that they're okay. And there are no outstanding issues, get them corrected if, if there are any issues. Then once you give it up, let's say you gave it up sometime in September, then in 2022, when you're doing your 2021 returns, you'll do a dual status return, which will be for January to whatever date in September you gave it up, you will be doing a 1040 as a US person. And then from whatever time in September to the end of the year, you do a 1040 NR, NR being non-resident as a non-US person, so dual status. And you do something called an 8854, which basically tells the IRS goodbye, I'm gone. And that's it. We do deal with covered expats. You trigger covered expat status, typically in one of two ways. 
if your net assets are in excess of $2 million at the time in which you give up your US citizenship, or if you're a long-term green card holder like eight years or more, and you do have more than $2 million in net assets, covered expat, expatriate uh, status can be triggered. Or if the uh, your tax liability over the past few years has been in excess of let's say $160,000 or so, then you'll be considered a covered expat and you will be subject to an exit tax. Uh, you can speak to us if you wanna calculate that exit tax and perhaps put some measures in place to try and mitigate or reduce that exit tax liability. So that exit tax is calculated on a mark-to-market -market basis. You list all your assets on like a balance sheet and you, you pretend, so there's a deemed liquidation as at the date of your expatriation. If the asset is appreciated in value, like stock shares, real estate, whatever, then whatever that delta is between basis and whatever the book value is or market value is as at that time, that'll be subject to an exit tax calculation. So please reach out to us. We can, we can hold your hand and work you through that process. Next question. If I get stock options from my Singapore employer, what's the difference between how Singapore and the U.S. taxes them? So, you know, we're talking about whether it's a qualified from a U.S. tax perspective, if it's qualified options or non-qualified options. Let's assume it's non-qualified options, which it tends to be because Singapore. Then you're paying tax. Uh, so when you exercise that option, if there's a delta between the exercise price and the market price, then you would have kept, you would have received the benefit, right? So whatever the market value is, less what you paid for it, that you record that as income. And then when you sell it on, then you have capital gains. So if you sell on, if you sell the, the shares, norm, normally there's a lockup period anyway, but let's say you're able to sell it within one year, then you'll be subject to sh uh, short-term capital gains. And if you sell it, uh, beyond one year, so your holding period is more than one year, then you're subject to long-term capital gains from a U.S. perspective. Obviously, in Singapore, there are no capital gains. I think where people really get caught up would be there's some deemed exercise rules, right? So if it is that you have options, so for example, if you got options and they did not vest as yet, normally they taxes on trigger both in Singapore and the US until something vests, right? So it actually comes to you when, you know, when it's not yet, there's nothing, if it's just an option or just, there's nothing tangible that you own, then there's nothing to tax. So we tend to look both Singapore and US, we look at the vesting schedule. And if, when you get shares and let's say they're just an award for service rendered, then, you know, that's pure income to you as at the date of vesting. Now, one of the key differences between Singapore and the US, and this is where people come to us complaining, would be the deemed exercise rules that Singapore has. So if it is your, your contract comes to an end, or maybe you switch employers or whatever the case, typically when your stint in Singapore comes to an end and you are moving on to another jurisdiction or returning to the US, and those shares did not vest. If those shares were earned while you're working in Singapore, the, sorry, the, the options were, were earned uh, or awarded to you while you're in Singapore, even though they didn't vest and they're only taxable when they vested, Singapore has these deemed exercise rules and they will tax you on them, even though they have not vested. Now that can become a problem 
for people who for whom they will never exercise the option because they've left the company or they don't meet the terms of the of of the of the award of the vesting. So then what you know we work with Bunyip and his team and it is possible to reach out to IRS, the Inland Revenue Authority of Singapore, and have a conversation with them and let them know, hey, we've left the company. We see this with some of the bigger tech firms, US tech firms that um, have an operation in, in Singapore. They're leaving, and, but they are not entitled to the share. So there will be no vesting. And once, they, once IRS sees the documentation and is assured that there will be no vesting, then the deemed exercise rule would not typically be invoked. So I'm just gonna have a quick look at some of the other questions that are coming in. Okay, great. Moving down to number five. I'm a Singaporean who studied in the US and I now have a green card. Uh, okay, so you're a green card holder and you're living in Singapore, okay, fine. My Singaporean father passed away, and I'm sorry to hear that. And I was named the beneficiary of his revocable trust, a Singapore revocable trust. What are the implications from a tax perspective? So when you, 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 your dad passed, that revocable trust, which is known in US tax terms as a grantor trust, becomes irrevocable typically, or a non-grantor trust, an irrevocable trust. And you are therefore the beneficiary, U.S. exposed beneficiary of an irrevocable trust, a foreign irrevocable trust, or a foreign non-grantual trust. I recommend that you do get uh, qualified advice. And to be fair, the, the, the trustees in Singapore are pretty clued up. So once they know you have a green card, they're going to tell you, hey, you need to get advice. And so you should follow them. And because what that means is that you'll be subject to disclosure on your tax returns, on your US tax returns, you'll be subject, typically subject to disclosure. Now there, there may be some elections that can be made to uh, delay the disclosure in your returns, but ultimately the bottom line is that there will be disclosure in your returns. And the nature of the, the disclosure on your personal tax returns as the beneficiary of a foreign trust is a function of what's in the trust and the nature of the distributions from the trust. So please you speak to either our team, you can reach out to us or any one of the US qualified teams in Singapore and there are probably about 10 of us. So pick whomever you feel comfortable with and have that conversation because the longer you delay, the more penalties and interests and so on that may accrue to you, even though you haven't got anything, you did not take anything from the trust by merely being a beneficiary, you will have the US tax implications. So please get advice. Uh, next question. My U.S. citizen who's married to a Singaporean, I'm in a long-term um, long PR. So this person is a U.S. citizen and a permanent resident of Singapore. I have assets and investments of around 10 million and I wanna leave them to my Singaporean wife and our kids in a way that avoids probate and is tax efficient. So I would, well, we, we are tax advisors, so not really like investment advisors. So we need to, to, to tread carefully. But uh, at 10 million, you should be above the threshold for some of the private banks in Singapore, such as Bank of Singapore uh, and, and so on. Um, yeah, some of the Swiss private banks as well would may be able to onboard you. So have that conversation because one of the simpler 
and more elegant solutions that we see our clients use is to just form a trust, uh, a, a foreign grant or trust, uh, uh, basically a revocable trust. So what that does is by having a revocable trust, once you, once you pass on, it becomes irrevocable, typically. And you avoid probate uh, for the assets that are in the trust, and it goes to the beneficiaries, the named beneficiaries of, of the trust. And you, you also get some element of asset protection as well, which is important, especially if they, the children uh, are younger and maybe still in school and whatever. So they may need some sort of protection or guidance as to how their assets should be enjoyed or consumed. So I would speak to a private banker. And if, if you don't have one, because some of them are a bit gun shy when it comes to US exposed persons, you can reach out to us and we can introduce you to trustees in Singapore that do uh, manage assets for US exposed persons. So that's something we can do for you. That's no problem at all. Uh, number eight, I've been in Singapore for a while and I have not filed US taxes. How can I catch up? You're not alone. Lots of people, it just kind of slips your mind. You know, you get caught up in other things. You forget whatever the situation may be. So as to how it is treated, it really depends on whether your non-compliance was willful or non-willful. So that concept of willfulness is not discussed in tax code. So we look at uh, case law. And what the case law tells us is that if it is that you intentionally sought to uh, avoid your responsibility, so essentially towards the side of tax evasion, so uh, you, the, you intentionally avoided and evaded that known legal duty, then you may be on the side of this spectrum where you need to do some sort of voluntary disclosure. Now there was an offshore voluntary disclosure program up to a few years ago, but it was discontinued under the Trump administration. So, but we, there are ways of voluntarily disclosing your situation uh, in the IRS uh, manual that, that we work with attorneys to, to walk you through that process. If it is your non-compliance is deemed to be non-willful, so you didn't intentionally, you know, just forgot, whatever, we can work with you under what is called the streamlined compliance procedures. So that is, that is typically what probably 90% of our clients use to go through their coming clean to the IRS. Now, it's important to understand the way the IRS works. Just like most tax authorities, most tax authorities, even the one in Singapore, they prefer you come to them before they come to you. If it gets to the stage where they have to chase you, it's not, the conversation is not as pleasant as when you come to them first and say, hey, made a mistake. I didn't declare X, Y, and Z. Here the back, here the, the prior year returns. Because in, in the US system, anyway, in the streamlined, it's an amnesty no but name. And you get to avoid the penalties, both civil and criminal. And the penalties can be pretty aggressive when you look at them. You know, it can be uh, $10,000 for each unreported entity that you've invested in. It could be up to 50% of the value of your bank account per year. So we saw a case of a resident of Florida that had a bank account outside. Actually, there was one with a bank account in Singapore as well. But I'm thinking about, I don't know what happened to that guy. He had one at uh, 
I think it's DBS in Singapore. There was another guy who had one in Switzerland. He had a million dollars in a, an account and the IRS deemed that he did not report it for three years. So they charged, they went up to the maximum, which is 50% each year. So they charged him $1.5 million as a penalty and an account with a million dollars in it. So that's how aggressive they can be. So you always want to get to the IRS before they get to you. That's, that's the point. And how do they get to you? Because of something called the Financial Accounts Tax Compliance Act or FATCA, every financial institution, every institution is licensed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore is legally obligated to conduct KYC exercises, know, know your customer exercises to ascertain whether any of the account holders are US exposed. And even if you open your account with another passport, because many of us have more than one passport, right? And you did not declare, if it is that a, the financial institution suspects that you are US exposed, even if you deny it, they're legally required to report you all the same. So that creates checks and balances in the system. So the bottom line is it just makes sense to come clean to the IRS before they find you. So with Streamline, there's a look back period. So even though you may not have filed for like 10 years, the look back period is three years. So you just filed the last three years, which so due date has already passed and the last six years for FBARs. And again, interest, but usually no penalties and, 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 you, and you're good to go. And of course, you write a statement and you promise to do the right thing going forward. If you want to discuss that further, please feel free to reach out to the U.S. Qualified Tax Advisor of Choice, or you can uh, email us, uh, reach out to us at our offices, and, and we'd be happy to help you. Next question. Uh, okay, somebody sent a message. Will you all be publishing the recording? It looks like I'll be unable to join due, due to the Jewish holidays. Uh, apologies, when we set the date, we didn't realize. I knew it would be Labor Day, right? But I didn't realize it would be infringing on a religious holiday. We'll try our best not to do that in the future. We need to be sensitive. But to answer your question, yes, it'll be published on Facebook. It'll be published on wherever you can, you can get your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play, Amazon. We publish it on over 20 platforms. So it will be available. Uh, the easiest place is probably to get it on YouTube, hg.tax. That's, that's our channel on YouTube or on Facebook. Uh, again, hg.tax, do a search and it, sh it should pop up. And, and on Facebook, it'll be available immediately. It's being live streamed right now. So once we're done, it'll be available for viewing right after. Next question. In the U.S., companies have access to various tax credits to help businesses during the health crisis and the lockdowns. Is there similar support for foreign-owned companies in Singapore? Bunia, this one is for you. Okay, right. Uh, yes. So if you look at uh, the Singapore tax system is uh, on territorial basis. So irrespective of um, uh, your status, so if you... Um, tricks. I mean, uh, if your income is generated uh, in this territory, okay, you're entitled to uh, the scheme, right? So a very good uh, example would be a foreign branch. Okay, uh, sorry, uh, uh, a Singapore branch of a foreign company. So, um, um, okay, they are just like a, a typical um, company in Singapore. So they enjoy the incentives that uh, a normal um, company in Singapore 
and um, the, most of the tax um, rules are the same, applies to them. So do the grants uh, for COVID uh, that are uh, given out to the, the, the employer. So they do enjoy. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's, that's great. Thank you very much for that. So we're getting some other questions coming in now, uh, but I'm, I'm just gonna try to stick to the order just out of being fair, right? Uh, next question, this would be number 11. For investing in stocks, and I guess this would be shares traded on US exchanges. Is it better to use a, a US bank account, a Singapore bank account, or um, if I have a non-resident alien spouse, I guess uh, he or she's married to a Singaporean, their Singapore account. And, and I'm not sure, uh, questioner, what, what do you mean by better? But uh, what you just keep in mind, uh, well, let's, let's create some context. It, from a tax perspective, the treatment, whether you as a U.S. person invest using uh, your U.S. bank account and presumably address or Singapore would be the same because any gains get reported on, on your U.S. tax return as they would normally be. And any losses would be deductible subject to passive activity loss rules. So it's, it's business as usual. Now, if it is that your partner who is Singaporean, 100% Singaporean, not a U.S. person, if they invest in U.S. shares, then their tax treatment will be slightly different in that uh, the dividends, or depending on what the security may be, it'll be interest. So dividends and interest will be subject to FDAP rules, FDAP stands for fix, uh, fix something periodic, fix discretionary annual periodic income, something like that. Uh, sometimes forget what that acronym stands for, but basically it'll be subject to 30% withholding. Now that withholding is reduced by treaty, but because Singapore has no tax treaty with the US, there's no reduction. So he or she, as a non-US person investing, like, shares in Tesla or Microsoft or whatever, the dividends will be subject to 30% withholding, but capital gains are tax-free. So non-US person investing in US uh, shares, typically capital gains are tax-free. The exception would be if the underlying assets may be real estate. So real estate is treated separately, but just normal securities will be tax-free. So it matters less where the bank account is and more who the ultimate beneficial owner of the investment will be or what structure that you use. So, so I, I hope that helps you. Next question. I'm a US citizen and Singapore PR, another person, right? Do I have to declare forward slash, how do I declare my CPF account? So I, I think you anticipated the answer. Yes, you certainly do have to declare your CPF. So many people don't, and especially those who use US tax teams outside of Singapore, they honestly don't know what a CPF is. And there's no real guidance to explain to them how to be, how to be treated. But we, we have actual guidance from the IRS back in the days for those who've been in Singapore a long time, when the US embassy in Singapore had an IRS desk in the embassy back in the days when they had the budget. 
they issued a memorandum which explained what the CPF is from a U.S. perspective and how it should be treated. So we, we have that memo because we've been here for a while, but essentially it is treated, the, the interest, you, you get your, your annual statement from the CPF portal. You just log in and you can download it. And the interest or dividends, depending on uh, how long you've been in the CPF or whatever, that will be declared as income on your Schedule B. And the amount in this CPF account is declared on your FinCEN 114 or your FBARS. FBARS stands for Foreign Bank Account Report. So on the FinCEN 114 slash FBARS, that's just a report. There's no tax implication to that. But the, the returns, even though you didn't get anything from the CPF, it's just a return in the fund that's reportable on Schedule B. And if you trigger a Form 8938, or otherwise known as a FATCO form, the CPF goes there as well. So that, that's, that's a great question, uh, Lindsay. It, you really do need to make sure that your tax scheme is reporting your CPF. Next question. Does a Swiss dependent pass holder married to a US citizen need to file taxes if she has her, trading, her money invested and is trading stocks? So I'll, cut, I'll divide that question in two, right? So if you are, as you say, a Swiss dependent pass, so you're not a US person, but you are married to a US person. If it is you, that US person, your, your partner has a choice as to whether to file separately or jointly. If your partner is filing separately, then no. Your name goes in the return because the IRS is nosy like that. They wanna know who US persons are married to, but you, you don't declare any of your income. If it is that you elect to file jointly under section 6013G, you can make an election for your non-US spouse to file jointly with you. Then yes, uh, all your income and everything is gonna be declared as if you were a US person. But typically the answer is no, you don't declare your stuff. Now, if you have, you, then the second part of your question, like you're investing and trading in stocks, it depends on where those stocks are. If it's uh, on the SG exchange, Singapore exchange, or if it is in Europe, basically outside of the US, then no, it's not subject to US reporting once your US partner is not involved in it. It's not subject to US reporting. If it is, it's your shares, uh, or you have invested in, in the US, in US securities, then it would be treated as I mentioned before. The dividend and interest will be subject to 30% FDAP withholding and capital gains will be tax-free. Okay, so I'm gonna to switch to Facebook because there've been some questions coming through on Facebook as well. So thanks for those on Zoom who've been asking questions. So James is asking, I'm new to Singapore and yes, I'm aware that you get to exclude the first 100K of income and then pay, okay, right. So James is just um, commenting on the foreign earned income exclusion, which is the, the main benefit is the section 911 of the tax code that accrues to US persons who are living and working outside of the US. So he mentions 100K, so I think for 2020, for 2020, it might be like 107, it moves up with, in, with inflation each year. So each year the IRS declares how much it is. And absolutely correct, James, that that amount of money is sheltered from, from US taxes. And what, what is earned above that will be subject to tax at whatever the marginal rate is. And you can benefit from section 911 in one of two ways. It could be as a bona fide resident or the physical presence test. Physical presence test is what everyone understands because it's quantitative and it's objective. 
So once you spend uh, no more uh, than 30 days, let's say in the US, you don't spend more than a month in the US, and you remain living and working outside, you qualify physical presence test and you, you enjoy the foreign income exclusion. The other way of qualifying for it is under the bona fide residence test. And that is subjective and more qualitative. So that's a test of intent. So basically the IRS is asking, well, you know, where's your heart? Where's, where's your real home? So it asks the leading questions on the form 2555, like, you know, where's you, where's, who's your employer? Where's your employer located? Is your employer in Singapore? Do you, in Singapore, do you like rent your apartment? Do you rent your home? Do you own your own home? What visa are you in Singapore under? Because if you're there on a tourist visa, that's not compelling. So basically they're looking for indicia that indicates that you are bona fide resident of whatever foreign jurisdiction it may be. And once you establish that, then you get to enjoy the foreign data income exclusion as well. So that's the main benefit for expats working overseas. Next question. Uh, I'm a US citizen on a local contract in Singapore. What type of deductions, if any, can I use when doing my US returns? Uh, aside from our kids, we no longer own anything back home. Thank you. <clears throat> well, that's a great question. So the main deduction uh, will be, well, the housing deduction as well, which is also in the form 2555, along with the foreign income exclusion. So that's a big one. And the foreign, the housing deduction is determined by the IRS. And they, they publish a table every year. So obviously Singapore is a, a high cost jurisdiction. So the amount that you get to deduct for your housing deduction can be much higher than let's say KL or, or Jakarta next door. So that's, that's, that's a key deduction that you wanna make sure that you're enjoying and you're getting. Along with that, you can get your utilities as well. So your SP, your SP bills, uh, not phone, not stuff like that, but your SP bills, you can get that as well. And another, other deductions mainly were around uh, unreimbursed business expenses, I'm assuming because you're in a local contract. So unreimbursed business expenses, that used to be a big deduction, but after the tax cut and jobs act and the president Trump in 2017, that the, the ability to enjoy that was drastically reduced in addition to which the standard deduction was pushed up. So have a talk with your tax advisor, make sure that you're getting your housing deduction and go through your unreimbursed business expenses and maybe any medical expenses because medical cost of medical care of healthcare in, in Singapore is pretty high. So if it is that you have bills of that nature, they may allow you to get a deduction on schedule A. Okay, I'm just gonna look around to see if there are any more questions. Again, feel free to type it in the chat box below if you have those questions. Okay. All right. Oh, here's another question. Continuing on my previous question, does she need to file taxes in Singapore? Okay, this is the US citizen married to a Swiss dependent pass holder. 
mm, that she needs to file taxes in Singapore. Uh, I'll leave that one with Buniep. So this, this is a follow-up question from Brandon. So US citizen married to a Swiss dependent pass holder living in, in Singapore. And the, the non-US person, Swiss citizen, okay, she, he's corrected, Swiss citizen. She, oh, he, oh, part, part, yeah, she, she is not employed, but she does have passive income, investment income arising from outside of Singapore. Would it be taxable in Singapore? So it's an individual. So uh, if you don't have any income, um, employment income or trades uh, from Singapore, business income, uh, you are not, you, you are not uh, required to file any uh, tax. Okay, so all investment incomes. Okay, so if you hold stocks, right, you did you receive dividends, they are tax free. Okay, you don't have to declare in uh, Singapore tax. And um, of course, you, if you have some uh, interest, you did some investment and you receive some interest uh, at the individual level, is uh, again not tax. Okay, I hope that answers your question. Uh, trading? Um, yeah, yeah. You have to, uh, again, it's territorial basis. So is if you have trade in Singapore, obviously you need to file tax irrespective of tax paying position unless you are, your company is dormant. Okay, so no activities, just subject to statutory and uh, statutory expenses then you don't have to file tax. And there's actually an avenue for you to submit a, an exemption from filing annual tax to the IRAS. Okay, so if you are a trading company, be it partnership, um, sole proprietorship, or a, a private uh, limited company, uh, you are required to file tax. All right, so, so overseas investment, Definitely, uh, that will not definitely, but potentially no to taxation on overseas investment income. But if it is that you have trading income, even though the trade may not be done within Singapore, but you are managing the trading business and it's happening outside of Singapore, but because uh, management and control of whatever the operation is, is being exercised in Singapore, even though the income may be earned and going into a bank account outside of Singapore, the point is that the management and control of whatever the trade is, is happening in Singapore. Therefore, it may be subject to, to Singapore taxes. Okay, that, that's, that's pretty clear. And, and please feel free to reach out to, to, to Bunyip uh, directly to, 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 have that, to have a deeper dive in, into that, com, uh, to that topic. So, uh, uh, sorry, um, so, uh, there, go ahead. There's another question about personal trading. So, um, I, I'm unsure what is personal trading. So, perhaps it's just like personal trading can be deemed a, a sole proprietor, can also be deemed a partnership. Okay, it's not a corporate. So, you have to, if you make a, if you have trade income, you, you have to file tax. Yeah. Okay. It, it, there's no such thing as a, um, personal trade computation. Okay, it goes into your personal tax. So whatever trade income, okay, you have to prepare a separate PL. Um, all the business expenses, 
okay, directly attributable to um, generating of income in the production of income are allowable. And uh, you have to come to a, a profits and that profits is tax that bring them down to the, your, your personal tax level and you will tax according to your tier. Yeah, so the highest tier in Singapore is 22%. It's quite high. Uh, it's quite high. It's quite high for Singapore, but uh, for the U.S., you know, and other jurisdictions, <laughs> it still is very attractive. Singapore. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. Th thanks for that, Buniep. Uh, and of course, Brandon, if you want to have that conversation, please reach out to to Buniep, and you guys could, uh, you know, have a more meaningful exchange on on that. And Buniep is ha happy to help. Um, you're welcome, uh, Sean. If, if you, Sean is asking, if you're earning below the foreign income exclusion, is there any significant advantage to hiring a tax advisor? What kind of costs shall you expect? So it really depends on your personal situation. You know, um, at the end of the day, the, the tax codes, they may be complex, you know, on the federal side, it's over between eight and 9 million words. And then each state has its own thing going on. So. It could be quite involved, but I've seen expats who are happy to, to take a dive into it and to explore it and understand it on their own. So if it is that you want to do that, I'm, I'm sure you, you, you're perfectly able to do that. Otherwise, you can speak to, to us or any other tax advisor that does international U.S. Singapore tax. In terms of our fees, just as an indicative fee of federal returns, they start at 800 Singapore dollars. So that's, if it's a simple federal return with no investments, no PFIX, no whatever, it's just a pure salary and there's no state, there's no nothing. And it's below the foreign and income exclusion threshold. You're looking at about 800 Sing. So, you know, um, especially if you're new to working outside of the US, you may want to have a look around and look at the way the tax rules are different for international as opposed to U.S. domestic. Even if you use, I know a lot of people try to use uh, not not QuickBooks but TurboTax. TurboTax is from Intuit, which is probably the largest tax software provider in the U.S. So they have a suite of software starting the, the, the lowest end of the scale. They have TurboTax, I think. And then they go all the way up to Pro Series, Lacert, and all sorts of stuff. So, so they they're running a business, obviously, and you know I respect that. But the point is that for TurboTax is kind of built for lower income U.S. domestic returns because when it comes to international returns, not all the forms are available on TurboTax. So you'd have to manually prepare them and add them to the return. Because the reason why is that they would include the international forms, but they'll charge you more for that. So you need to upgrade to Pro Series or Lacerta to one of the others, which have a, a much higher price point. So my point is, have a look at the software, have a look at the forms that are required and, and try it out. And if you feel comfortable doing it, go for it. Otherwise, you may need to enlist some professional help. Any other questions? I'm just going to have a quick look at what they're saying on... Okay, so I have another question. Are we able to deduct rental housing costs even though my company pays half or some of the rent? Right. Mm -hmm. 
so this is this is a question about the housing deduction which goes in the form 2555 yes you can so they if, if it is that they your company is giving you a housing allowance that is taxable income to you and that that's that's part of your gross income anyway so it matters not what the allowance is for you know whether it's for school or it's for that trip back to the US once a year or for maid or driver or, or whatever, right? All the income is treated as gross income and it's, it's purely taxable. We, we just wanna see what the, the dollar amount is and that is taxable income on, on your 1040. Now, if it is that you do use some of that to pay for rent, then it would be, uh, deductible as a housing deduction on your form 2555. So basically it's going in one side and out the other, if, if that makes sense. It's coming in at the top and then you get a deduction for it uh, below. So, yep. Any other questions? Oh. All right. Thank you. I think that's it. Thank you very much for, for joining us. If you want to reach out to Boonyip, uh, for those on Zoom, you can see his email address and, and you can look for Boonyip on LinkedIn as well. His email address is uh, Boonyip, you want to tell everyone how you can be reached? You're on mute. You need to unmute yourself, Boonyip. Um, sorry, okay. So I've just sent across uh, my email address and um... Uh, feel free to just send me any question you have. Um, try my best to address them. Okay, great. And for those on different platforms or listening to the audio-only version, it's y.yee, -E. so y.yee -E at moresroland.sg. So that's y.yee -E at moresroland.sg. And our email address is on the US side and we help at hg.tax. And we look forward to seeing you at the next live stream. Everything that we, we do is on our website at hg.tax. You can see upcoming live streams or you find ways to reach out to us. We also have a rich library. You know, we have literally thousands of articles on US tax and international tax in general, as well as hundreds of videos. Uh, we, we do a video every day with uh, tax advice that we think would add value to you as you plan your career and you plan your investments and your businesses. So again, thanks for sharing your time and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Here are four ways we can help you. Number one, sign up for free webinars on U.S. Expat Texas and International Entrepreneur Texas at www.htj.tax. Number two, stream premium educational videos at www.htj.tax Number 3. Contact us for tax optimization consult offer Zoom. Number 4. High net worth. We can quote for doing your U.S. international taxes returns. Our books and upcoming events are available at htj.tax. Please subscribe, like, share, and comment below. Email us at help at to engage us to advise on international tax or business matters.